Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. Um, so today we're continuing in uh, this study that we started last February, and then we took a break for it, and then we're back in it this February, and then we're going to take a break from it again and uh, catch the rest of that. But we're studying through the minor prophets, okay? And so I know uh, today we'll actually kind of click over the halfway mark. We're, we're over the hump now. We're on to minor prophets seven. If you're not familiar with what the minor prophets are, it's they're those little small last 12 books of the Old Testament that you probably haven't studied or read a whole lot um, because, uh, as you're going to see today, they're pretty dark. And, uh, but there's some, there's some good things there, and these are the, these last 12 books. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I studied this week, uh, so I, I'll be celebrating 15 years in vocational ministry this April. And so really, really excited about that. However, as I looked back at 15 years worth of messages, sermons, and Bible studies that I've done, there's at least one book that I've never preached on before. It's the book of Nahum, the seventh minor prophet. And so as I looked, not only have I never preached a message on Nahum, I have never referenced a single verse from Nahum, <laughs> nor have I, to the best of my ability, ever mentioned the word Nahum <laughs> in a message over 15 years. So what the Lord has allowed me to do over the last couple of weeks is study a book that I wasn't actually super familiar with. And in one sense, as I was studying, I was like, I get it. <laughs> I know why I've never preached on this, because wow, that is a lot. And you're going to see today what I mean by that. Um, I sent the outline to the other two campus pastors. Uh, if, you're, if you're new here, uh, we're part of Lindsay Lane, so there's three campuses. And so I'm actually writing the sermon series for all three campuses. So I sent that to Alan and Andy John, and I said, hey, good luck. This is a tough one. Like This one is... This is a deep book with a lot going on, and, and it has some of the most intense passages I've ever read in the Bible. And I'm going to read them to you today um, and I, it, as it talks about the impending destruction that awaited Assyria. But as strange as it is, and as tough as it is to study, Nahum absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, teaches us incredible things about our God. And today, if you'll hang with me, what we'll see is we'll all leave here with a better understanding of who God is, knowing God better. Just hang with me, okay? So I'm going to read just the first three verses, these introductory verses of Nahum. Then I'm going to pray, uh, thanking God for his word, and then we'll come back and we'll start diving in. And if you're a note taker today, like if you like taking the notes, you're going to love it today. We've got points and sub points. You're, I know, yeah, I know. I, I spoil you, I know. All right, but here we go. Uh, let me read uh, the first three verses of Nahum. The word of the Lord says this. The pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Off to a roaring start. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, I, I pray that God, as we study through the book of Nahum today, God, all in one sitting, that God, that you would just help us to see it. God, help us to see the beauty, God, in the midst of the judgment that was coming for a nation uh, that chose, God, to, to not follow you and to follow other gods. And so, God, help us to see um, who you are in the midst of this. Teach us to know you and to know the depths of who you are today and be with us. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen. Uh, when I was in elementary school, uh, I went to school with punks. I don't know. There were times where I probably was a punk, okay? But I know some of you, uh, some of you, all of you probably know what I'm talking about when I say punks in elementary school. Um, my biggest fear is that I'm raising one because my wor- the, the there's different types of punks. And the worst punk to me was the one that was just always poking you and kind of like just, just making noises and poking. And I've got a seven-year-old at home and like he loves aggravating me that way. And he knows, he knows, he knows it. Um, but there, so there were different types of punks, but, um, and, and there were, and there was, you know, some that just aggravated you, but then there were some that were just really bad and mean to other people. Right. And I can remember being in, mil- in elementary school and there, there being nothing worse than having a punk get away with it day after day after day. Watching the teacher get on to everybody around them, but miss what that punk was doing to drive everybody else nuts. Right? But then there were those old oh, glorious days where you'd be sitting in math class and you'd hear the the little the, the intercom speaker buzz for a minute before they talked, and you would hear uh, Miss Smith, um, can you send Danny Tribble to the uh, principal's office, please? And you're like, yes. Finally, they busted Danny on something. Like, finally, she's got to go. This is going to be awesome. Like, can I get a front row seat to the paddling? That's what I want. Like, I want to be there. I want to see it. This is going to be awesome. Because, listen, the reason that is is because there's something deep within us that hates to see injustice. When we look around at the world and we see bad people doing evil things and getting away with it, it burns us inside. This is what the book of Nahum is about. And when the Lord began to help me see that, I went, oh, thank you. This is so relevant to where we are. This is what Nahum is all about. So to to catch you up with the context, what's going on? Remember, uh, all the minor prophets are written in a period of time in which uh, the, the nation of Israel, this once great, powerful nation of Israel, has divided amongst itself. So you have a northern kingdom that retained the title Israel and a southern kingdom that became, named as, became known as Judah. Okay, So Nahum is a northern kingdom prophet who's living there af- during and after the time when, if you're a world history buff, you're like, yes, 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 yes. When the Assyrians came in and took over the northern kingdom. They came in as an act of God's judgment. We've already studied that, that God used the Assyrians. We're going to talk about some more today. But this Assyrian, they came in and they they took over the northern kingdom. And so as a prophet of the northern kingdom, he was probably the ones going, hey, Israel, stop. You're sinning. You're disobeying God. You're doing exactly the same thing he told you not to do. Assyria is going to come in. Stop, stop, stop. Too late. So now he's on the back end of this. Israel was in one hand, in one sense, that punk kid like Danny who needed to get in trouble. But now it's Assyria, right? He's watched Assyria come in. But guess what? As we talked about in the Jonah message, Assyria was awful. They were evil. The whole nation was evil. And so Nahum is sitting there waiting for the intercom to buzz, waiting for God to do what he does to bring judgment on evil. And Nahum is speaking here to the nation of Israel, to the people, the northern kingdom, and he's saying, it's coming. The Lord has told me it's coming. So there are at least three important things to note. They're going to kind of provide our map 
through this. As I was, somebody told me this morning that, that they had been reading along with Nahum and they were like, that's, you know, they thanked me for the, the path forward because they had read it and not really grasped it. And I said, that's every time I pray. I just pray, God, show me the, show me the flow of thought through this book <laughs> because that's what I need. I need these signposts. And today I want to show you three signposts that are, that are going on in this whole book that hopefully will help us understand the overall message. The first one, point number one, here we go. So we've got to understand his wrath. We've got to understand God's wrath, okay? This big, scary word. We often talk about God's mercy. We like to talk about God's grace. We love to sing about his love. And yes, man, when we think about God's character, I want to rest in those things too. Like I love those character traits about God. However, what we see in verse 2 of chapter 1 is none of those words. Chapter or chapter one verse two is jam packed with some intense character traits of God, and they do not they do not look loving at first glance. So I want to show you three of those. We don't have time to go through all five, but I want to show you three of these before we move on. The first one he says is God is jealous. Now I always think of jealousy. Uh, we I equate that with sin, right? I equate jealousy with uh, Pat. Bought a 36-inch Blackstone. I had to have a 28-inch. I wanted a 36-inch. I got jealous, and I wanted it, and I wanted to go to his house and steal it. Right? Like that's, that's the sinful nature within us that says, I want what someone else has. That's jealousy in my mind. However, even Merriam-Webster, do you all know Merriam? It's an old friend of mine. He wrote a dictionary. You should look it up. Very, very helpful. Um, but in, the, in Webster's Dictionary, even, even, even Merriam defines God uh, even defines jealous this way. This way. Vigilant in guarding a possession. To be jealous for something is to be vigilant in guarding a possession. And when I read that, I was like, that's it. That's what it means to be, that's what it means for God to be jealous. And when you go back and you look at the instances in the Bible where God is jealous, which I did this week, and we're not going to look at all of them, I just want to look at one. Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. The first time the Bible says God is jealous, God's given Moses the Ten Commandments. And he gets uh, here and he says in verse 4, Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above, or in the earth below, or even in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. What possession in this text is God vigilant in guarding? It's his own worship. It's his own worship. It was, we'll say it this way, his own glory among the nations. This is what God was guarding so vigilantly. This is what he was jealous of. So hang on to that idea. God is, is, is vigilant in protecting his own glory. Let's go to the second word, avenging. Now, I can't see the word avenging without thinking of the Avengers. That's right. Um, those movies that you have to, there's too many of them. It's too hard to keep up with the Marvel Universe. Uh, I don't know how y'all do it. Too many movies, I can't keep up. But when I think about avenging, I think of I think of Captain America, Hulk, and Iron Man, who are who are traveling the multiverse, defeating evil. Right, like that's what the Marvel movies are about. And yet, in the same way, long before they were doing it, God was, God was, God was dealing with evil. God was taking on the worst villains in the world. And we often think of the word avenging and vengeance. 
Like it's a very emotional sense. Like uh, I thought of a back and forth of rival gangs. You know what I mean? Like some guy sold drugs in our neighborhood and then so then we beat him up and then they shot up our house and then we killed that guy and then they killed two guys and it just, right, like this vengeance back and forth that rises to a fever pitch. But that's that's completely rooted in selfishness and emotion so we know that cannot be the case with God. But the word avenging simply means payback. It simply means retribution. It's, it's very similar to a word that would be used in a courtroom. When someone is guilty, the correct punishment that's given to them for a previous action. This is, this is the word vengeance. And it's used three times in one verse. And if, you, if you've been here a little while, you know what I think about that. If the author uses three uses the same word three times in one verse, what do you think we need to do? We need to pay attention because there's something going, there's, there's a purpose behind that. So we might want to pay attention to this. So we have this, we have this, uh, this jealous God who is jealous for the sake of his own name and he seeks to pay back evil. And then the third word, that's the big one, wrath. Which wrath is such an intense sounding word. Like, I, I, don't know, I don't know what it is. And y'all know I'm not a Hebrew scholar, okay? Like, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. I barely squeaked by a seminary, okay? Y'all don't have some genius up here preaching, okay? I looked it up in software, okay? So somebody a lot smarter than me told me the Hebrew word for wrath. But it sounds so menacing, too, and I thought I'd share it with you. And I'm sorry for the front row because you're about to get spit on. Um Chema. Doesn't that sound so intense? That's the word wrath. Chema. Right? And so it, that word, man, but listen, it literally means heat. Think about that. The word for wrath literally means heat. It's used to describe the venom of a viper. It's used to describe poison that's on arrows. Right? Like this, is, this is what it is, but it's also used to describe anger and fury. But most often in my Bible translation, it's translated as wrath. And so again, we think of anger and fury in relation to sin, but anger can also carry with it the idea of justice. Listen, I'm a nice guy, have been for 36 years now. I'm a nice guy. I've, I haven't punched any of you in, in frustration. Do y'all know that? Three years I'm the, okay, I thought I'd get a standing ovation for that, but I've, I haven't punched a church member yet. Thank you. Uh, I haven't done it, which is pretty cool, I think, over three years. But here's the deal. I'm, and there's people probably calmer than me, right? It takes a lot to get me mad. Okay, it takes a lot to get me angry. It takes a lot to get a response from me. But I'm just like everybody else. There's certain triggers in my life where I go from Mr. Calm and cool and collected to don't cross me. And one of them sitting on that back row back there, my wife. And the other two bear my name and half my DNA, my children. You see, church, just so, and I've told you this before, uh, I'll stay here as long as the Lord lets me, as long as y'all will have me. But like, my wife and my kids, they off limits, right? Chew me up, post about me on Facebook, dog me out to anybody you want, I can handle it. 
but don't cross my family because then you got to cross me, right? See, you see that. And none of you, none of you, if one of you said something evil about my child and I kind of went, huh? None of you would go, what a sinner. You would go, that's a good dad, right? Wouldn't you say that? So in the same way, how can the heat of God, how can the wrath of God as he bows up against the sin in the world, how can we go, man, whoa, God, I thought you were supposed to be loving. I thought you were supposed to be good. No, he is a good God, and that's why he bows up. That's why he bows up. And so this is a God, this, this, is, a, this is a justice in God's wrath. This is our God. We think of a loving, gracious, and patient God who wants what is best for us, and that is certainly true, but he is certainly also not one who should be crossed. He's a holy God deserving of our worship, and when we see his wrath, it should be frightening to us. So to put these three words together, we have a God who gets really angry when his name is dragged through the mud and will execute a punishment on those who do so. Put those three words together is all I did. And I'll just be honest with you. That's probably not going to sell. Like that's not a clip we'll post on Facebook that's going to go, hey, oh, that's cool. I want to worship that God. Like that's not the pr- the promotional side of God that, that, that is necessarily attracting to people, but y'all, it's who he is. It's exactly who he is. And, and we've got to accept that and acknowledge that and live for that and, and worship him because he is a jealous, avenging, and wrathful God. Because notice what Nahum said. Nahum spends six verses. And I don't even read all six. We'll come back and get four through six here in a minute. But he spends six verses talking about some really intense attributes of God's wrath. Listen to the very next words he says. The Lord is good. One of the things we've been talking about the last few weeks is we see this, as we see this, this, uh, this different side of God than maybe we see in some of the New Testament books is that these attributes of God See, uh, put it this way. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a friendly guy, but am I friendly all the time? No, I can turn it on and off. When I'm in a bad mood, like I've kind of been this week, my wife can tell you, not been super friendly all the time at home, okay? Trent, honest church time, okay? Right? And y'all are acting like I'm the only one. Thanks, okay, awesome. Well, we're, okay, yes, thank you, thank you, there we go. Okay. No, um, but for all of us, like that, we, we get to, even the best attribute of who we are, we're not that all the time. See, God is different. God is these things all the time. God, so this, this is why we can say that when God is, uh, when God is, uh, jealous and when he is avenging and when he is, when he is wrathful, that he is also good because he never ceases to be good and he never ceases to be avenging. He never ceases to be wrathful. He is these things all the time. This is what ties all of it together. God is not jealous, vengeful, and wrathful in a sinful way because he is good too. God is all these things in such a way that he retains his holiness and his goodness. So what we're going to see as we keep going through, as we keep studying about God's character, is Nahum makes it clear who in this period of time in which Nahum's writing, remember that, this is a contextual book written in a particular period of time, he makes it very clear who will experience his wrath and who will not. So point number two, we're going to see the objects of his wrath. The objects of his wrath. So as verse 7 begins to talk about God's goodness, as we've already read, Nahum references two groups of people over the next few verses. One, those who will seek him 
and those who plot evil. That's the way he describes them. And there are two very different outcomes for these two groups. So let's look at verse 7 and see the first one. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. Now remember when Nahum is writing, the northern kingdom of Israel has just been overthrown by the Assyrians. However, they are not all dead. They're not all dead. As we talked about last week, God showed his mercy by allowing many in Israel to remain alive under Assyrian rule. Nahum is one of those. So God offers, has offered this correction for his people like by the Assyrians coming in, but in the midst of it, there is always an opportunity to repent and to follow him. And Nahum says here that God is not just a wrathful God. He is also a stronghold when distress comes. He cares for those who come to him for protection. God was offering himself as a safe place for the remaining Israelites who would come to him in faith and repentance. His wrath would not be poured out on them. But as you keep reading, beginning in verse 8, there are some who absolutely will receive the wrath of our good God. And Nahum, the wrath, uh, the objects of his wrath are the Assyrians. Look at this. Remember that Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. So it's not just reference to a city. It's a reference to the whole people. Verse 8. But he will completely... Remember, this is right after he's a stronghold in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. But he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood. And he will chase his enemies into darkness. Whatever you plot against the Lord, he'll bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time. For they will be consumed like entangled thorns, like the drink of a drunkard, like straw that is fully dry. One has gone out from you who plots evil against the Lord and is a wicked counselor. Nahum says of of Nineveh and of Assyria that they are his enemies in verse 8. In verses 9 and 11, he says that they plot against the Lord. And in verse 10, right in between them, he says, they will be completely consumed like like dry straw in a fire and like the drink of a drunkard. You know what that means? Quickly and completely. For our family... We could use the analogy of Elsie Joe and pancakes. I know you think your kid eats pancakes fast and a lot. She does. They don't. We ate at Cracker Barrel Friday night, and Elsie Joe can absolutely put away pancakes faster than anything. She didn't drink. She just, I don't know. Like pancakes before Elsie Joe, this is the wrath of God against Assyria. God is promising Nahum and his people, I know you were frustrated by this evil nation that has consumed you, but their day is coming. This is why Isaiah would say in his his writing, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. There may be a season in which the wicked enjoy the mercy of God as he allows them to live and maybe even allows them to thrive in some ways, but God will not allow evil to go unpunished. Assyria had had their victories. They enjoyed the spoils for several years, but God is promising, my people, listen to me, it is short-lived. I will bring them down, and he does that. If you know world history, you know that in 612 B.C., Nineveh falls as the Assyrian Empire begins to crumble. Nahum not only talks about 
who was deserving of God's judgment, but he describes the way in which God brings his judgment about. And this is what's this is where I want to settle in for a little bit. Shows us again the nature of our God. So I'm labeling point number three this as we see it in the text, the tools of his wrath. What does God have at his hands? Spoiler alert, everything. But here we go. First thing that that uh, Nahum shows us is that God uses his creation as judgment. Look back at verses 4 through 6 of chapter 1. God rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither. Even the flower of Lebanon withers. We're going to come back and talk about those three places. Don't worry. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. It's the God we serve. You see this. When what in God's the question on the table is what in God's created order can he not use for his purposes? And the answer, you just have to do this. Nothing. There is nothing. He can dry up the sea. He can dry up the rivers as a drought in a means of judgment against his people. He mentions Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon. Just you research those, you look up those in the Bible. What you'll find is that Bashan was a region that was captured by the Israelites back in Numbers 21 before they even got to the land of Canaan. It was a land east of the Jordan River known for its fertile ground. The word Bashan in Hebrew literally means Fruitful. So Carmel was a high region, sometimes referred to as Mount Carmel. And it contained what the Bible tells us was a natural spring that made it a very strategic location. Because of its high location, it was also a place of idol worship. If you're familiar with uh, the story of Elijah and the, the, the big battle against the, the, uh, the, uh, the Baal worshipers, if you do not, 1 Kings 18, go read it. It's crazy. And when I say crazy, you're going to go, oh, that was a short sale, Heath. It's really nuts. Um, but it's this whose God is real showdown that they have, and it's on Mount Carmel. And then Lebanon was another mountain that is spoken of several times in the Bible. It comes from the Hebrew word meaning white. It's because it had snowy peaks. But it's famous for these huge cedars that grew on the side of the mountain. During Solomon's time, many, many generations before what we're reading today, Solomon, as he's building the first temple to the Lord God, he has them float cedars, have them chop cedars down and float them down to Jerusalem so he can use these giant cedars in his building of the temple. The flower of Lebanon no doubt refers to these giant trees. So not only does God have control over seas and rivers, but also the most fertile region of Bashan could wither at his hand. The mountainous spring of Carmel could disappear and the cedars of Lebanon dry out and fall over. At the sound of his voice, if he chose it to be so. Then Nahum goes on to say that the mountains, the hills, the whole earth itself is a tool in the hands of this vengeful, wrathful, yet good God. There's no one who can protect themselves from his wrath. He has all of creation at his disposal. If you're reading, you're going, Assyria's in trouble. It's not these things that Nahum says God's going to use. Because God can also use human action as judgment. God can also use human action 
as judgment. God not only has access to trees, mountains, and rivers, God will use the actions of humanity against one another as part of his judgment. In chapters 2 and 3 of Nahum, they speak about the downfall of Nineveh, uh, the city, and Assyria as a whole. And it is detailed, and it doesn't involve wind, earthquakes, dried up rivers, or a dying tree. It's an army that attacks. And like, I tried my best to just sum up those two chapters for you, but I couldn't do it. Because I'm telling you, if you're a literature buff, you're fixing to love what Nahum says in the next two chapters. Because on one sense, it's some of the most beautiful literature I've seen in the entire Bible. Like the way it's worded is so beautiful. Yet it's talking about the downfall of an entire city and an entire nation. So it's sad at the same time. But I'm I'm just going to read most of chapters 2 and 3 to you as we go through this. So hang with me. Because again, you've got to witness it. Chapter 2 begins, One who scatters is coming up against you. Man the fortifications, watch the road, brace yourself, summon all your strength. Verse 3, the, sh- the shields of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The fittings of the chariot flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations, and the spears are brandished. The chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush around in the plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. He gives orders to his officers. They stumble as they advance. They race to its wall. The protective shield is set in place. The river gates are opened and the palace erodes away. Beauty is stripped. She is carried away. Her ladies-in-waiting moan like the sound of doves and beat their breasts. Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first days, but they are fleeing. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure and abundance of every precious thing. Desolation, decimation, devastation, hearts melt, knees tremble, insides churn, every face grows pale. It's not even over yet. Verse 13. Beware. I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will make your chariots go up in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. Woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and jolting chariot, charging horsemen, flashing sealed, Uh, sword, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their dead. Verse five, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will lift your skirts over your face and display your nakedness to the nations, your shame to kingdoms. I will throw filth on you and treat you with contempt. I will make a spectacle of you. Then all who see you will recall from you saying Nineveh is devastated who will show sympathy to her where can I find anyone to comfort you that's intense right it's clear how God feels about Assyria but he ends this way there is no remedy for your injury your wound is severe all who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you for who has not experienced your constant cruelty So I'm going to ask you a seemingly dumb question after hearing chapters 2 and 3 of Nahum. Who is it that's going to destroy Assyria? Is it an army or God? 
See, y'all, I told you a few weeks ago, anytime a pastor asks a question, it's a trick. He's not looking for like one or the other. It's usually yes. If you just say yes, that's it. Because that's what we're seeing. Nahum describes in detail that this, this other army is coming in and destroying Assyria, yet at the same time, it's God who's doing the destroying. You see, God can use even the actions of an army as his means of judgment to accomplish his purposes. You see, at the end of Nahum, you get all the way to the end. That's the end, verse 19. It ends on a question. The readers left asking the question of themselves, who is it? Like, who is it that God's going to bring in to destroy Assyria? Who is it that's going to accomplish this feat for the Lord? Will it be Judah's army from the south as they come to, to kind of like, you know, destroy them for destroying their brothers, this battle? Or is God going to raise up Israel's army like in some sort of militia underground way and then pff, they're going to rise up and take over? It doesn't say. Nahum doesn't specify. The Lord didn't give it to Nahum. But we know because of history that it was the Babylonians, which if you do the research, they were just as nasty, if not more evil, than Assyria. We're going to talk about that more next week because that's Habakkuk's main complaint against God. But yet it's God who it's it's God who's using the Babylonians to bring judgment on the Assyrians, just as he used the Assyrians to bring judgment on his people Israel. We know that the Babylonians were not seeking the will of God as they overthrew Assyria. They were simply thinking conquest and power. Yet God used that for his own good and purpose. Man, church, I don't know if you noticed, if you knew this before you came in, but we serve a great big God who has nothing, nothing is outside of his ability to use. One that controls the seas, the rivers, the mountains, the fertile land, the forests, and even the armies of the nations. What a mighty God we serve. Nahum, as we read through and you get to the end and these questions are on our heart and the questions are on your mind, what you begin to realize is that Nahum presents to his original audience and then to us through the word of God what God revealed to him. But we know now it's a somewhat incomplete picture. It's a somewhat incomplete picture of what God was doing then and even what he's doing now. Because what we know now is that God's purposes in the world are much more individual. What I mean by that is that we know now that God has always had a desire for the hearts of individuals to call on him. God's desire has never been that every nation in the world just put their, his name at the top of their shields as they go to war. But God's desire has always been for the hearts of the nations. The same judge who was at work then is still at work in the world today. And the Bible says that one day we will all stand before that judge. The same judge that ruled Assyria will judge the entire world and the wicked will receive their eternal punishment and those who are in Christ will receive their eternal reward. But what the rest of the Bible tells us is that we do not have to fear this judgment. As those who have trusted in Jesus, we do not have to fear this judgment. Yes, God's wrath is hot and it burns hot against sin. But what we also know is that as hot as his sin was, it was absorbed into the person of Jesus through his death. Jesus' blood 
that was shed absorbed the wrath of God as hot as it was burning was absorbed into his own body and he took the punishment for our sin on our behalf so that we can experience freedom from God's wrath today. Just as God promised through Nahum that he would be a refuge, a stronghold to those who seek him through the conquest that lay ahead of them, so we too are promised security and confidence as God's judgment draws nigh through our relationship with Jesus. That's why Peter could say, Sorry, Patrick. This is why Peter could say, 2 Peter 2, 4 through 9, If God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell, delivered them in chains and utter darkness to be kept for judgment. And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly, and if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly, but if he rescued righteous lot distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral within the cities. For as the righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. If there is anyone here, man, I just, I got to let you know, if there's anyone here who's not trusted in the name of Jesus to save them, you can do that today. The judgment that is coming does not have to, you don't have to be on a serious side when the judgment comes. You can confess your sin to the Lord, turning from it, asking him to save you today, and God will, through Jesus' blood. We're going to sing one more song, and I want to pose some questions to you. First off, man, I was saved at a young age, and I praise God for that. I praise God that he not only saved me from my sin, but he saved me from a life that I could have lived that I didn't have to because his spirit dwelt in me and led me. And today, I want to worship God in this last song because of what he did in my heart as a young kid. And I want to praise God for the way he saved so many of you, and he saved my children and has called them to follow him. My wife, who the Spirit of God dwells in her, I want to thank God for these people in my life. So you may want to spend this time worshiping or praying and thanking God for that, but we've also got to deal with Assyria. We've got to deal with those who are yet, who are still under judgment our friends, our neighbors, our family who have yet to call on the name of the Lord will stand just as Assyria did in judgment one day. And so like our hearts can't go, well, whatever. Like our hearts have to be drawn to tell them and to share with them and to pray for them. So you may want to spend, maybe that's the way God spoke in this message is goodness. There's so many people in my life who have not yet trusted in him. I want them to. You need to spend this time praying for them. I'm going to be at the back if you need to help, if you need my help helping you with any next steps or need me to pray for you about anything, I'm going to be right back here on this side. But we're going to pray, and after I pray, we'll stand and respond however you need to. Father God, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for a Nahum, God, just a book I haven't spent a lot of time in. But God, it's uh, so good. God, so good to see uh, a God of power. God, a God of justice. Yet even in the midst of that, God is your goodness that never ceases. And God, today we worship you because these things are true of you. And God, we pray for understanding in the world we live in, God, as we see decisions made, God, as we see people around us heading down paths that, God, are not honoring to you, God, even churches that are abandoning faith in you, abandoning true doctrine, God, we... we we don't understand everything we see going on around us, but God, we want to call on the name of the Lord who can move mountains to accomplish his purposes. And God, I ask you to step in and lead people to repent of their sins and to trust in the great big name of Jesus. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen. Guys, let's stand and respond.